Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. It's Jack Rico, and welcome to a milestone episode. This is my 10th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast, and I barely thought I was going to get past two episodes, but I'm now up to 10 And that's a testament to you guys tuning in. So thank you very much. On this week's episode, I chat with the one and only Brian Tyree Henry. If you don't know him by that name, you might know him as Paperboy on one of the most acclaimed TV shows on TV right now, FX's Atlanta. We discuss everything from the reasons on why the show is resonating with viewers, the new golden age of black pop culture, his affinity to Latino culture, why Broadway still lacks diversity compared to film and TV, and a passionate discussion on why the use of the N-word in today's arts and culture landscape is okay with him. That plus a look at why the website Quartz decided to create a Spanish language newsletter with its senior editor Gideon Litchfield from London, as well as horror film recommendations for this Halloween. You guys ready? Let's go! Okay, if you've been watching FX's Atlanta, you know who Brian Tyree Henry is. He is the spirited and pragmatic rapper Paperboy who has captured the attention of America. Are you Paperboy? No. Yeah, you are. Well, why'd you ask if you already knew the answer then? But Brian is enlightening in a bottle. He's a thespian educated at the Yale School of Drama with Shakespearean technique and even was an original cast member in one of Broadway's greatest comedy musicals, The Book of Mormon. He joins me now on the podcast. What's up, Jack? How you feeling, man? Let's talk... What were your thoughts when you first heard that Donald Glover was cast as Lando Carlesian in the new Untitled Hound solo project? Uh, I screamed. I cried. I uh, <laughs> did painting in a dark corner because I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was absolutely uh, just ecstatic. When did you first meet Glover and what were your initial impressions on him? The first time I met him actually was for my test. So I did an audition and they called me straight to test. Uh, and then they mentioned, they mentioned, oh, by the way, Donald will be there. And I'm like, Gambino? Like, <laughs> Glover is going to be I was like, are you sure? Like, are we not Skyping? He's going to be in the room? Okay, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, I decided to kind of like uh, dress as the character. I really try to do that, you know, because I don't want to seem like I'm like trying to force myself. But I really wanted to play Alfred. So I dressed in a black polo, you know, I had like a, a chain on and some camouflage pants, which you see me wearing yeah, in absolutely. episode one and two, which is hilarious. I was like, oh, it made it in. Inside and, uh, wink, we yeah. Next to each other. Yeah, we sat next to each other and, you know, I did, um, you know, the scenes with him, but then we were able to ad-lib a little bit and, and, and it just, 
we just hit it off, man. I mean, I, I truly love this man. And um, he really feels like he's more than a cousin. He feels like a brother to me, you know? So it was great to just be in the room and to play with him and to see, like, if you get to make Gambino laugh, then you know you've done something <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was like, as long as I can crack this dude up, then I've definitely done something right. So that, that happened nonstop. It happens to this day. It happened on set all the time. So it was it was beyond amazing to be there with him. To a certain extent on the show, you're representing the image of rappers. What is at the core of Paperboy? What does he stand for? His, uh, he stands for family and he stands for friendship, man. And he really stands for just having a big heart. I really feel like it would be so easy to look at Paperboy and already um, kind of make him this kind of thug or make him hard or make him you know, seem like he's uneducated. And I was like, that is definitely not who he is. Like, he just mentioned wanting to finish the movie Amadeus, you know? He mentioned yeah. Ansel Adams. He's, he's, he's hella cultured, you know what I mean? He knows what it is, and he also has the duality of that because he also is from Atlanta and happens to just be a part of the streets, you know what I mean? But he doesn't want the streets to be all of who he is. And I really feel like that's the truth with most rappers, you know what I mean? Like, you come into the game, with what you've been through and where you've been, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where you want to stay. And so I feel like it's important that people know that Paperboy uh, has goals and he has dreams and that he, you know, he, he really just wants to have a good time. Now, at the same time, though, there's mm -hmm. also that flip side where he can be incredibly petty. <laughs> and I love that's that the charm about him, though, man. I mean, that, that's the thing, right? Like he can, he's going to, he's going to stand up for himself, but he's all about having a good time. And, and since his cousin thrust him into this limelight that he wasn't really asking for, you know, what better way to finesse it than by staying as true to himself as he possibly can? You know, like he's going to want his brown liquor. You know what I mean? He's going to want to like be get the shine that he feels he deserves. You know, um, since you thrust me in that situation. Uh, but I think that the core, at the core of who he is, is that he has the biggest heart of anyone, and, and um, he definitely wants to protect those he really cares about. Because you know, being in the trap game is hard. You lose people every day, and then you gain people who don't really mean anything to you. So the people that mean anything to him, he really wants to protect and keep. Right. You know? um, let's talk a little bit about the show. I did want to talk to you about the frequent use of the N word on the show. It ha it's been sure. happening not only in Atlanta, but I, it, I, I've heard it and seen it on uh, shows like Luke Cage as well. It mm -hmm. just seems like everybody is somehow just okay with the term. Quentin Tarantino, for example, was criticized by Spike Lee forever for the overuse of the word in his movies. But shouldn't the same criticism apply today to anyone using the word in the arts? What do you think is the proper use of the word and should we be using it? You know what's crazy is that the N-word is the least thing that I'm afraid of right now because there's a lot of terms that are absolutely um, okay by, the, by America's standards that are actually more harmful, I feel. I mean, we're looking at this presidential campaign of a person who's running out and saying whatever they want and saying it in a way to really, like, criminalize people and make them feel less than who they are. I mean, to say that Mexicans is a rapist, I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like, it's okay <laughs> for that. It's okay for that to be put out there, but the N-word is a part of our diaspora. You know what I mean? It's a part of our lives. It's the way that we talk. And we had to take ownership from it. We had to take the ownership back because sometimes that is just the, the easiest way or the most uh, familiar way for us to communicate. And I just feel like there should be no excuses uh, of why it's used amongst our community because it is a part of our community. It was put on us as this badge 
uh, like this burden to carry around when instead we can use it in a way to relate to each other and take the power away from it. So I feel like, especially in Atlanta, you know, which has its own universe and its own flavor and its own language. Uh, I don't think there needs to be an excuse for the way that we use the N-word. You know what I mean? Like, that is just, first of all, Alfred is from the streets, and he is right. from the tra- the trap. But at the same time, he can turn his charm on just like that and use really big words like facetious, you know, and right. verbose. And he's, he's educated. And I don't think that that uh, word needs to be a moniker to, to uh, make people seem like they're less uh, intelligent or that they're not um, of the way of the world because it's just a part of our lives. And to act like it's not being used and to act like it's not something that other people use. Like, listen, I know all hip hop right now is spit in words, in words, in words. And if it's a white boy from the suburb listening to Gucci Mane, he's going to say the word amongst his friends. And I can't <laughs> act like he doesn't. You know what right. I mean? It's part of the song. But it's also not a walk of his life. You know what I mean? So I think that's the difference. I think the difference is if you're not from that walk of life, then you know what the ownership is. You need to understand what the ownership is and why it's used the way it's used instead of glamorizing it and being like, well, Gucci Mane said it, so I can say, well, you're white from the suburbs, so maybe you shouldn't say it. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. So I just like, you know, so it's like, we just really wanted to make the environment of this of this world of Atlanta as real as possible. And we would kid ourselves if that wasn't a part of it. We would kid ourselves if we hid the world from what that is. Because that's not what our show is aiming to do. Our show is aiming to give you the raw side of this of this life and these people as much as we possibly can and trying to find a way to put a spin on it to show you how laughable some of these situations and prejudices that we hold and carry are and you know i feel like that word is also one of them so we just want to expose that and and put it out there because people know everyone knows about it you know everybody knows that trump has the worst hair piece but we don't really (laughs) talk about it you know what i mean so it's like so it's just like you know we just want to keep it real you know we just want to keep it real atlanta is one of the best reviewed shows on tv this year no doubt uh what do you think is the specific appeal of the show and why do you think other demographics have connected so much with it i think it's representation uh because you know and this we've gone a long time without having venues to give us the shine that we want or that we feel like we deserve. You know, it's very easy to feel that a lot of shows are whitewashed and very easy to feel like, well, there's nobody up there that represents me, you know, and I feel like right now we need to flood the market with representations of what this country is. This country isn't just one-sided. This country has flavors from all over and we really wanted them to be represented. You know what I mean? Like, like I said, there are Alfreds everywhere. Everyone knows the Alfred. I don't care what race you are. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what religion you are. Everybody got an Alfred, all right? So I, I think that the goal of Atlanta was to just really put uh, the scope, not just on us as the actors, but on the viewers as well, to turn the lens around on you while you're sitting there and being like, oh, my God, I've done that. Oh, my God, I totally know a promoter that's like that. Oh, God, I hate shots, too. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. (laughs) Make sure that when you're sitting in your living room, regardless if you're in Hawaii or a landlocked state, you could go, hey, wait a minute, I know that dude. Hey, wait a minute, man, I I I totally get that. So I think that it's just been a long time that uh, television has had uh, this this explosion of, uh, I don't want to just use the word diversity, but, uh, it is that, you know, uh, of realizing that there's not just one way and walk of life. Like, we want to show all of them and what better place or city to put it in than Atlanta, you know? Uh, what, what is your relationship with Latino pop culture? I, I'm, I'm Latino myself, and so I kind of wanted to know where you think 
our space is in this moment because there's such an explosion of black pop culture. Do you listen to reggaeton? Do you listen to bachata? Do you I watch? Do. Well, first of all, I live in Harlem. I live in New York. So reggaeton is playing on my block all, all the time, man. You're right next to Spanish all Harlem. The time. Yeah, man, from the morning till the end, you know, and I always like, I'm like, if there's no black Harlem, there's no Spanish Harlem, it's just Harlem, you know, and that's why I like Harlem, because Harlem is a hub of all these different cultures and all these different, walk, uh, you know, walks of life that just so happen to be ethnic, that actually live together and, and are thriving together. And so when it comes to Latino culture and black culture, I put them hand in hand, because we have all, and both cultures have endured such uh, discrimination and such, um, uh, uh, I would like to say, you know, having our back, having backs turned to us, telling us no, you know, having our communities taken from us. And the great thing I love about Latino and Black culture is that when you tell us no, then we'll shift and make a community bigger and better than you ever saw right, before. Right. Where people can always pull up a table to eat, you know, to pull up a seat to eat at our table. You know what I mean? Like, there's always room and space for everyone else to to thrive and live from our. Uh, uh, from our communities because we make it that way. That's just the way it is, you know? And, and that familial aspect of what Latinos and Black people do in this world, it's unparalleled. And, you know, you can't have one without the other, you know? I, I, I truly, truly, truly love uh, Latin art and Latin writers and Latin playwrights and Latin uh, filmmakers and Latin shows, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm sorry, Gina Rodriguez is the hottest thing in the game right now. Rosario <laughs> right. the hottest thing in the game right now. Like, they are really telling these stories and, you know, all praises to them because to us, I mean, there is no, uh, there is no us without, you know, each other. And I really feel like we represent each other in the best way. We hold each other down. And li listen, black culture and Latino culture is just bomb, okay? It's just the bomb. It's, it's true. Just, it's just great. Our food, the way we dress, the way we talk, it's, there's just a certain kind of way we move to this life with our eyes full of wonder and finding a different way to show ourselves off and show our pride. Like, I've never seen any pride ever in my life uh, bigger and better than that of Latinos and Blacks. I just haven't seen it. And we're in a world that wants to tell us that we can't be prideful. I don't know what that's about. They, they don't want us to shine out here. I know. Weber, I don't know why. I don't know why. But, you know, I, it's just a great thing to see this happening for us because it's for us and by us and we try to give it to the masses. That's what we do. You um, know, if you don't want to know, it's because you don't want to know, you know? Right now, pop culture is black culture from film to music mm -hmm. to TV and sports. In your opinion, what triggered this current explosion? I think um, at this point it was a necessity because, I, I mean, we are living in a time that is not much different from a few decades ago and not much different than a century before that. And when the people have had enough, the people have had enough. And we decided that we had enough and we want to speak. If you're not going to give it to us, we're going to go grab it. How about that? Like, how about we colonize this? You know what I mean? Like, how about we go and really make something that will reach the people that we really, really know need to hear uh, their own voices reflected back to them. You know what I mean? We really wanted to provide a place, um, not even a safe house. We want to provide a place that isn't looked at as, as, provocative and exotic it should be the norm because we are the norm that's what america is that's why we're here to, this is our country too you know and we really wanted to reflect all sides of our country and uh, i feel like atlanta is really speaking out to those i feel like it bridges that gap between the young millennials all the way to people who were baby boomers you know what i mean and i think that that's the most important thing is the communication 
and to realize the similarities that we all share together instead of the differences that keep us apart, you know? And I feel like Atlanta and calling it Atlanta in itself makes that possible because that city does just that. It does just that. Yes, it's in the Bible Belt. Yes, it's where Jim Crow happened. Yes, it's where civil rights also happened as well. And there's place for everyone there to thrive. And we really just wanted to show that that's what we do as a people. That's what we do as a community. That's what we do as a race. That's what we do as a nation. We, we like to unite. We want to unite. We want to tell these stories because our stories are rich. Our stories are, are bold and vast and go far beyond what our eyes can see. And we just really wanted to just take a piece of that and give it to the public, you know? You're a theater man. I know you studied acting at the Yale School of Drama. I am. I've done a bit of theater. (laughs) I heard an interview where you had to learn Shakespeare. You had to like all these tools that you had to learn how to... You better believe it. It's so awesome. your Shakespeare, your Ibsen, your Chekhov, you know, but at the same time, I also wanted to dive into my August Wilson too, you know? I really wanted to make sure that people knew about James Baldwin. I really want to make sure that people knew about Susan Laurie Parks. You know, I, so there was, a, you know, Stephen Adley Gurgis, you know, all of that. We really wanted to make sure, really, Yale provided a place for us to really um, go to a tool shed that's full of tools, like the Home Depot of tool sheds, you know, and you pick and choose which tool you know is right for you as long as you take care of the vessel that's going to pick the tools, you know, like you are your most important thing. You have to go and live life. You have to go and experience life. Can't nobody do that for you. And what Yale provided was uh, just an opportunity to pick which tools worked for me for my tool belt. You know what I mean? And I will forever be in gratitude to them. Like I will forever be grateful for what Yale provided for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, you had to learn it all, bro. You had to learn it all. So I'm I'm forever grateful to that institution for providing me that place. So you know? speaking on theater, why do you think Broadway is lagging so much in the diverse storytelling department? Because, you know, we got tired of calling it the great white way, damn it. Like, I know. It, 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 was, it was time to reflect the people. You know, for a long time, uh, Broadway theater goers were those that had the money, those were, that were of a certain class. Those that were that were considered the most cultured, but that didn't reflect everybody. That didn't reflect the real audiences of people in New York. You know, New York is so much more diverse and so much more um, open to uh, to different backgrounds of life. You know what I mean? So why are we only seeing one reflection on stage? Right. So, this yeah. is what I'm saying. And if and if those stories actually. Uh, because, you know, we've had The Color Purple, we've had Hamilton, but I don't think it's enough personally. And if we do create stories that are more inclusive and more diverse, do you actually think audiences will pay to see more culturally diverse storytelling on Broadway? Listen, listen to this. I did a show called The Book of Mormon by Trey Parker. And I Matt remember Jones. I was there. I name, saw okay? you on stage, my man. I have never laughed as hard as I laughed in that show. I got to sing a song called Hasadiga Ibowai, which translates to Fuck You God. Every single night I got to say it. Every single night I got to thrust my hips at this audience. Yeah, my mouth was jaw dropped open, man. When every time you said I was like, I was in shock. Yeah, man. And here we are five years later and it's still sold out because the people wanted it. The people needed it. The people needed to know that there is something bigger and better out there for us and that what we believe is okay, what we believe is enough. And yet, at the same time, what we believe isn't enough is us believing together 
that makes it possible. So to sit out, to stand on that stage and look out into that audience and see somebody who has been going to theater since Carol Channing was on stage, all the way up to kids who had never been to theater before, laughing together, clapping together, howling and being like, that's right. That's why you do what you do. That's why I do what I do because, uh, you know, I never in a million years thought that there would ever be a musical like that. And it's so sad that that's so ingrained in me to think that it's not possible, but anything is possible now. Anything is possible now because we're trying to do it together. And that's the most important part of why our show I feel is thriving so much because, you know, regardless of where you come from, I feel like you, you can relate to it. If you can relate to me screaming, fuck you, God, at you, you definitely can relate to a show about three black men in Atlanta. You know oh, what I absolutely. mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so listen, Brian, right before I let you go, man, uh, I wanted to do a quick speed round with you to, uh, just get a peek at what you're seeing, what you're listening to, what you're downloading. Uh, you down? Oh boy. Okay. All right, here we yeah, go. Let's do it, man. All right. Favorite late night show. Full Frontal with Samantha B. Dude. Oh, that's... Full Frontal with Samantha wow, B. Wow, dude. You know what? I love you already, man. Thing. <laughs> Yo, and The Daily Show. I love Trevor Noah, man. And Trevor Noah, too. Big ups to him. Yeah. Those, All right. Those are my late nights. App you can't live without. Oh, Zay. I'm going to have to go ahead and say uh, Instagram. <laughs> I'm going to have to say it. Because that's where I find all my pins. That's where I find all my art. That's where I find really great gra- graffiti art, graphic art. Uh, I can't live without my Instagram, man. Funniest person you've ever met? Donald Glover and Keith Stansfield. <laughs> of course, of course. A movie that changed your life? Oh, man. Uh, please don't judge. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, dude, that's my favorite, man. That's one of my favorites, uh, of course. The original. The original West <laughs> Yeah, not the remake. Changed my life. The final one. An album you'd recommend to everyone? Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Oh. Without a doubt. Nice. Okay, Columbia. cool. I thought you were going to say Thriller for a second. Oh, no, 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 no. We got to start with Quincy Jones and Rod Temperton, man. You got that's it, it was the first album I ever listened to at the age of three. Three years old, I listened to it on vinyl, and to this day, it still rocks. It still rocks it down. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. I think you have uh, one of the best shows there. I think that your Thanks, character is one of the most memorable actors on television right now, and I wish you continued wow. success. I uh, wish you I'll the best in every it, way, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it, man. Keep watching. You can catch Brian Tyree Henry on Atlanta every Tuesday at 10 p.m. on FX. It's time for Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. The Incredibles 2 will now hit theaters in June 2018, and Toy Story 4 will hit June 2019. Video game Uncharted is coming soon to the big screen, and Javier Bardem will team up with Jennifer Lawrence for a Darren Aronofsky movie called Mother. Changing over to the small screen, there's a Will & Grace revival in the works at NBC. Knight Rider is getting another reboot. Jennifer Lopez will do a live holiday musical in 2017 with NBC. And Conan O'Brien is headed to New York to take five shows beginning this Halloween. Switching to music. Colombians Carlos Vives and Shakira are set to perform in Spanish at the 2016 American Music Awards on November 20th on ABC. Iconic Swedish group ABBA 
launches a virtual reality venture with Simon Fuller, and there's two new Prince albums, Prince Forever and a remastered version of Purple Rain coming out November 22nd and early 2017, respectively. In tech and social media news, Twitter is pulling the plug on its six-second video platform, Vine, but they did not disclose on why it's shutting it down. Apple unveiled a new MacBook Pro that showcases an interactive keyboard strip called Touch Bar. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art in NYC, New York City, launched a new podcast called The Memory Palace. Some interesting news came out of the digital media landscape this week when QZ.com, a highly valued news site targeting business people in the new global economy, decided to create a Spanish-language newsletter targeting readers in Latin America and the United States. To ascertain its intent and approach in targeting Hispanic consumers in this mercurial Latino market, Gideon Litchfield, a senior editor of QZ.com, joins me via phone from London to elaborate. Gideon, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jack, for having me. Why have newsletters become so prevalent as of late? I feel like uh, they're almost everywhere. Uh, what is the appeal and where do you think it fits in a company's overall business strategy? Well, when we're being a little bit prideful, we like to say that we're responsible for that. Um, so four years ago, when we launched Quartz, we decided to launch a, a newsletter as well called The Daily Brief. And the, ro- the logic of it, the rationale was simply that um, people are getting news much more on their mobile phones. Um, everybody checks their email and everyone has too much information. And so if you provide something by email that comes at a regular time every morning that sums up the world news for them in three minutes, um, they might read it. Um, and that's what we did. Um, and lots of people since then have kind of copied that idea. Yeah, it sounds a lot to me like a curated platform where uh, this is something I've been talking to for quite some time is that we, we're suffering from an overload of information in our world right now. And we need curators such as these newsletters that you're doing mm-hmm. uh, to kind of create more of a compact sense of who you are and customize that information to you, correct? Right. It's also predictable. You know when it's coming. You know how long it'll take you to read. You know, it's kind of like what newspapers you were, are, you know, it, the thing that comes to you in the morning and contains a certain number of pages and makes a promise to just give you a roundup. So why the decision to create your Spanish language newsletter, La Henda, and what audience are you exactly looking to target? Our, our current audience is people who, uh, a lot of whom are in fairly senior business positions around the world. Um, and we figured there is a group of people like that who are also Spanish speakers scattered across different countries. Um, we knew, I know from my experience when I was based in Mexico for four years for The Economist, that Latin America is a bunch of very diverse countries. Each has its own media. Each has its own interests. Correct. Um, but you know, there is nonetheless a group of people within those countries who uh, are interested in global news and they're interested in regional news. And there isn't really uh, a single medium that provides that as an overview for them. It tends to be much more national media. So we thought there is an opening here. It's a way for us to get in to reach a Spanish audience with a fairly small footprint at this point, just an just email newsletter, but provide them something that I, we think is missing. What Latino numbers research have you seen that stood out to you with moving forward with creating La Henda? Was there a particular thing that you said, oh my God, it's, this is incredible. We definitely need to do this. Uh, no, to be honest with you. Um, so this was more a- intuitive more than anything for you. We have, we have a kind of saying at Quartz that we make small decisions based on data and big decisions based on our gut. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> and in this case, it was definitely gut. It was, okay, I mean, the, 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 you know, the simple number is um, that you know, the world has half a billion Spanish speakers. 
Um, but, um, you know, other than that, it's, it was just this, this sense that there is there are these people, there are these audiences, they, they have lots of different media, um, but some of them must care about the world. And, you know, it's not like we have to blanket Latin America. If, if, we, if we get uh, relatively small but, but regular readership, then we're, we're content. So this is about Latin Americans, not so much as about U.S. Hispanics. Well, it's also about U.S. Hispanics, but I figure that they are much more likely to a be reading in English and b to be reading um, uh, a bunch of other other media. I mean, we would love we would love many of our readers to be U.S. Hispanics too, but um, we think it's 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 put it this way more competitive for us to, to reach that. How um, are you making the newsletter, the, the people, you, your readers, aware of the newsletter? Are you reaching out to them directly? We're doing a bunch of different things. I mean, we're talking to Spanish language media. Um, we're spreading the word among Spanish language journalists using our networks. Um, we're relying on, we'll be relying a lot on word of mouth. Um, almost all of the growth of the daily brief in English came from word of mouth. And what will the content be like? Are you focusing on original stories for the newsletter, or are they translated stories, much like what like the New York Times is doing in Espanol? The way that the you know the daily brief and La Agenda are both they're like really compact news summaries. So each each newsletter is less than a thousand words and contains um, about twenty uh, stories. Um, so these are like really summaries of stories uh, with links to the media that they originally came from. Um, so what we do with La Agenda is that about, I would say, half of it is translated from the English language newsletter. And so that's stories that we have judged to be global and interesting for the English language audience. And then about the other half, roughly, depending on the day, uh, comes is stories that are from Spanish-speaking countries or also from you know, from Brazil, obviously, so Latin countries, uh, and are about goings on there. So, you know, if the English language newsletter doesn't have things about the latest protests in Venezuela or the, the latest moves in the peace process in Colombia or the latest steps in the Petrobras sc- scandal in Brazil, uh, the La Agenda might have it. And before I let you go, how many Hispanic subscribers are you looking to build up to before pitching it to sponsors? Uh, we actually, we don't have a fixed number of that. I mean, I think we're talking about the tens of thousands. Okay, because I know, I know the Daily Brief has about 250,000, if I'm correct. Correct. So if you have anything like half of that, that'd probably be very interesting to sponsors then, right? I think so. And, you know, we were able to sell advertising on the, on the Daily Brief for, to a much smaller uh, audience than that when we started out. Um, it's just the, the thing that we're conscious of is that in Latin America, there isn't really, you know, for the same reasons I talked about, there isn't a single advertising market. It's not like you sell ads to Latin America. You sell them country by country on, on, on the whole. Uh, so it's a slightly more complex proposition, uh, but we think we can get there. If people would like to sign up to it, to La Agenda, how do they go about it? Ah, great. So we have a page, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, mm-hmm. slash La Agenda Quartz, or one word. Gideon, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. As we wind down to the end of the show, I visited New York One's movie review program, Talking Pictures with Neil Rosen, and reviewed one of my favorite movies of the year, Kicks. Will Smith's son, look a little boy. Come here. These cost more than your life. What up, boy? We got them shoes for you. Oh! 
I love this film. It left such an impression on me. If I was 15 years old today, this would be my boys in the hood. And uh, you know, what I really liked about this, it's not necessarily about sneaker culture per se, but it's about uh, what happens when one becomes engulfed in materialism and the ramifications of that. I thought that Justin Tippin uh, illustrated so vividly uh, urban youth, street culture, masculinity, and the highs and lows of that sneaker culture. Fantastic film, I recommend it for everybody. One of the best films of the year. Halloween is already upon us and people are always looking for a great horror movie to see. But instead of me recommending the expected classics like The Exorcist, here are three of my personal favorite Spanish language horror film recommendations that you might have never heard of. <laughs> what the f***? Number three, Uruguay's La Casa Muda. This movie, known around the world for being the first horror movie shot in one continuous take, centers around a father and daughter who discover there's a mysterious killer loose in the house. Disturbing, suffocating, and groundbreaking, La Casa Muda will leave you trembling. Number two, Venezuela's La Casa del Fin de los Tiempos. Sus huellas estaban en el arma. También había sangre del niño. ¿Quién fue Dulce? Fue la casa. A young woman unleashes a terrible prophecy and 30 years later she returns to unravel the mystery that has terrorized her for years. It's full of suspense, unexpected twists, and an original story that is absorbing and thrilling. And the number one Spanish language horror film that I personally recommend comes from Spain. It's El Orfanato. Simon? Produced by Guillermo del Toro and directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, El Orfanato is a masterpiece of Spanish-language cinema. Winner of Seven Goyas, it tells the story of a mother whose son mysteriously disappears as she embarks on a years-long search to find him. Get ready for one of the best plot twists in modern cinema. No se trata de ver para creer, sino de creer para ver. Crea, entonces verá. So this week I was doing a couple of things. I had a chance to uh, pass by the Today Show to join my friends Kathy Lee and Hoda uh, to discuss Atlanta's creator and star Donald Glover about being cast in the new Star Wars film. Take a listen. Star yeah. Wars and Donald Glover, what's happening? Yes, Donald Glover, not yeah. to be confused with Danny Glover. Yeah. Uh, Either one, I love him. <laughs> he's going to be a household name. He just got cast as Lando Carlesian uh, in the new Untitled Han Solo project that's wow. coming out in 2018. What a great looking young man. Uh, mm -hmm. He's perfectly cast, in my mind, and he's also one of the most talented people in Hollywood. He's a Grammy nominated artist. His show, Atlanta on FX, is one of the most acclaimed TV shows on TV right now. Uh, he's going to be in the new Marvel Sony Spider-Man Homecoming movie, and now he gets this. I mean, talk about a meteoric rise. You can catch the rest of the segment on showbizcafe.com. We've come to the end of our 10th episode. I'm actually kind of sad. I wish we could stretch it out into the 11th episode, but that'll come next week. I want to thank Brian Tyree Henry and Gideon Litchfield for being on the podcast, and thank you everyone for listening the last few months. I hope you've enjoyed all 10 episodes. Would love to hear from you. Uh, give me some feedback. Email me at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. We're now on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. Talk to you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.